evening, everybody. It's great to be back with you. I always love being here with y'all. Tonight, I'm going to be preaching through Psalm 8. And in the 8th Psalm, I, I love this Psalm. I like them ni nice and short, to be honest. I prefer the shorter Psalm, the better, in my opinion. Not because I don't like to read it, but because I think if you can go through a whole Psalm in a short amount of time, you can get the overarching view much better. And then you can start to get really in-depth into the verses, and you can become a, a deeper understanding a lot quicker, which I appreciate. So Psalm 8 is one of those. It starts out very praiseworthy, praising God for what he's done. And then he starts to get into some theological messaging about how we get involved, and it wraps up right at the end with another statement, repeating the very first part of the psalm, which is that God is very good. So... I'd like to talk to you tonight about doing your job. I think we find that in Psalm 8, that we have a job to do. If any of you have ever watched an NFL game any time over the past two decades at least, you've seen one team beat almost everybody else consistently, and that's the New England Patriots. I won't bring up the 2017, or, or I guess it's the 2018 Super Bowl with the Falcons. But other than that, I'm a big fan of how they've you know, operated, how that organization conducts themselves. They have one phrase at the New England Patriots, a motto for the entire organization, and that motto is, do your job. It's written all over the place. They've got uh, you know, signs for it. I think if you go into bathrooms, in Foxborough, Massachusetts, there's a sign that says, do your job. I'm not exaggerating. Everywhere around that organization, top to bottom, is expected to do their job. And the idea is that if everybody just concentrates on what their role is, and everybody does their role well, then everybody's going to have a good time. And you've seen that over the past few decades with how the New England Patriots have won and won and won and aggravatingly so, that they just clear through the NFL consistently because everybody does their job. Well, here in Psalm 8, I think we have eventually a picture of what our job might be. We go the first few verses, 1 through 3. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. The first part we see in this psalm is that God has done a job. God has done a marvelous job at creation. So all of creation is God's work. He's planned it out, and we get to experience it. Some people think this is, by the way, a nighttime rumination by David, all right, because you don't see anything about a sun in there. So a lot of exegetes in the past said, this must have been David at nighttime outside, just, wow, man, this is great, God. How marvelous are you? If you can imagine, about a 1,000 years before Christ, all right, somewhere in modern-day Jerusalem, sitting outside, there's no street lamps, there's no car lights, there's no TVs on, no cell phones. 
Some people estimate that with the naked eye, we can see up to about 5,000 stars at night if we don't have any light pollution, up to 5,000. And so David, maybe he's looking at these upwards of maybe 5,000 stars and thinking, there's nothing that's going to beat this. You've done this all. And by the way, I want you to look at this, that it says that these moon, the stars, these are the work of his fingers. When I, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, which, by the way, is a juxtaposition to verse 6 when it talks about his hands doing the work. So this is on purpose by David, by the way. It's not an accident. It was purposely put there to say two things. One, God has no trouble making the heavens, but two, this is just flair for him. It's not the main project. Got it? The heavens are just flair. The main project, the actual handiwork, what he's really putting work on, is us. That's in verse 6. But right now, the heavens, the moon, the stars, the 5,000 stars that maybe you can see with a naked eye at night, it's just the finger work. Just rolls off the fingers. If you've ever seen this Instagram celebrity who his whole gig is just to cook meat and put salt on it, all right? I mean, if you've ever been on Instagram, you've probably seen this guy. He owns these steakhouses, and all his videos basically are him in a really tight-cut V-neck T-shirt, and he just cuts up a steak, splays out all the meat, and then he has a bowl of salt over here, okay? And he takes the salt in his hand, and he goes over to the meat, and he does this real fancy maneuver where he, like, sprinkles it on him like this, all flare, and at the end his pinky's up, you know, and he stares at the camera, all right? And I think his name is, like, Salt Bay. So this guy, whose whole shtick is just to sprinkle salt all over meat, this is sort of the theological messaging that you're getting here from the psalmist, is that the incredible things that we think of as like a moon, that is this huge chunk of rock that is somehow still staying in orbit of our world. And 5,000 stars, which by the way, by the time their light gets to us, maybe that star has just exploded and we don't even know it. And perhaps that dot that we think is a star is actually a galaxy containing how many millions of other stars within it, it's just flare. It's nothing. God just did it just because. But it's not even his handiwork. So first of all, about job, God has done his great job of showing us a great creation. Look in verses 4 and 5. What is man? So a little bit more grounded. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him just a little bit lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. So right here we get glory and honor. Those are royalty terms, okay? So if God is doing the creation and crowning us with glory and honor, that means it's like he is now putting a crown on us. We are like royal emissaries. We are working on behalf of the king. So although God has done a great work in creation, now God has given us a very lofty position, something to live up to. Um, this is, uh, I think, where this, this psalm starts to get back to the doctrine of creation that you'll see in the, the first part of Genesis. 
And that the first part of Genesis, there's, there's kind of two almost, not different messages, but different styles, different maybe qualities to the creation story in chapter 1 versus chapter 2 in Genesis. And in chapter 1, when God makes man, he tells him something. It's a big old word that starts with an S, subdue. And I always like that term. If you look at that word that appears other times in the Bible, that word subdue oftentimes has a very violent connotation to it. Subdue. And so it's almost like, and he tells them in the first part of Genesis 1, when he's telling them to subdue, yeah, the deer, whatever, deer season, go get them. All right? Made a bunch of turkeys. You like to eat turkeys? Go get one. It's cool. If you want to, you know, go to Texas and fly out of a helicopter and shoot feral hogs out the side of the helicopter, you can do that. You can subdue this earth. It's like an outdoorsman's dream. But you get to chapter 2, and he puts, it says that he put man in the garden in order to keep it, to take care of it. So we have both. The outdoorsman's dream, you can, you can go get it, go for it, subdue it, and at the same time, take care of this wonderful thing I've given you. And both are part of this lofty position. You are allowed to go and subdue because you, are, you have been crowned with glory and honor. You're allowed to do that but I've got a job for you to do. So keep it and take care of it. You have the high position, but as you know, our, you've all heard this line, but it's probably most famous from my standpoint of Uncle Ben in Spider-Man where he says, where great power comes great responsibility, right? With great power comes great responsibility. So that's what we're getting now in the psalm. God has done a very big work in creation. He's done his job. He's given us a lofty position, and now the responsibility that comes with that lofty position. So there, here we go, verses 6 through 8. You have made him, so this is again, God, he, he's, David is saying, you God talking about what in the world is man to God. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. He's given us the high position, but now, even though he's put everything under our feet, that means we have a responsibility of administration, right? We are to be like little rulers. So we have the idea of subdue. We have the idea, though, of keeping. You know, every kind of valuable piece of dirt on earth usually has a grounds keeper. If you turn on the Masters and you see the Augusta National, that place is not pristine because Bobby Jones just dreamt it up about a century ago, right? That place is immaculate because there's a little bitty army in Augusta, Georgia, that every single day they go out and have the task of keeping the grounds of the Augusta National, right? That's why there's a tree gets blown over in a storm. Man, that pine tree's blocking, you know, fairway nine. Go play 10, all right? 
You done with 10? You ready? Come back to 9. Where'd the pine tree go? It's the army, man. They got it. It's Augusta National. They know what they're doing. If you've ever, you, that's why you don't see trash on the ground at the Augusta National. Because it's held with such honor. If you, if you got your priorities m messed up, then it's sacred ground, right? I think if you have, you know, you know, you got pimento cheese on your wrapper and you throw it over there in the pine straw, I'm pretty sure people just descend from the trees with a net and just, <laughs> and haul you off somewhere. Why? Because that ground is well thought of. There are people who keep the ground, who subdue the earth and take care of it. And the people that are there are expected to act a certain way, to behave a certain way and to participate in keeping that place clean. Why? Because the place matters. I gotta tell you, there's not a place that you can see that God did not create and that does not matter to him. There is nowhere on this earth that you can see, no one on this earth that you can see that does not matter to God. So, Although we get the pleasure, like I said, you can go to Texas and shoot feral hogs out the side of a helicopter. By the way, there is a business that does that in Texas. You are allowed to do that. There is no one or no place on this earth that does not matter to God and that he is not calling you to keep. There is no place that you can see that is more important than the Augusta National to God. And just as you will never see a pimento cheese wrapper flying in the pine straw at the Augusta National, so you should never treat this earth or anybody that way either. Part of our job as the subduing, but then also the groundskeeping, is to treat this earth as if it is an, an immaculate treasure, because guess what it is? It is. Here's another one for you, another illustration for why God would give us this job, this, this lofty position. Have any, anyone ever heard of the literary framework view of uh, the creation account? The literary framework view. Good. You don't need to know it. And I know Pastor Cruz is coming, and I don't. This is not me telling you to think this way about Genesis. I'm just going to give you an insight into one of these scholarly views, and you make up your mind about it if you like it or not. You ever heard of a a Dutch scholar called Ritterboss? Meredith J. Klein, Meredith K. Klein, I think. Y'all don't need to know these scholars anyway. The idea behind the literary framework view of Genesis is this. That this guy, I think it was Ritterboss, who's maybe the one who came up with it, or at least the one who popularized it, he said this. The six days of creation are not meant to be read chronologically. They're supposed to just be read logically. And here's why. He says if you look at days one through three, they should be grouped together. And if you look at days four, five, and six, they should be grouped together. And what you do if you use to make a chart and say days one, two, three, verse days four, five, and six, somehow days one and four line up with each other. And day two and five line up with each other. 
And days three and six line up with each other. Here's how. Day one, God makes light, and he separates light from darkness. On day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. Now day two, he separates the waters above from below. In other words, the skies from the seas. So on day five, he makes birds and fish. On day three, he separates the waters from the dry land. He makes dry land on day three. Guess what he makes on day six? All the stuff that lives on dry land. Got that? So the point of this, not that it's just some fancy chart, the point of the literary framework, what it's saying, is that if you look at the beginning of the creation story, verse 2 in the Bible, it says that the, now the earth was formless and void, right? In other words, it's got no shape, and it's empty. Literary framework view says it was formless, so he formed it, and it was void, so he filled it. You got it? So days one, two, three, he made all of the spaces necessary in creation, all the theaters, if you will, and then in days four, five, and six, he come along and fills them with everything that's supposed to act out the theater. Light, sun, moon, and stars. Sky, sea, fish, birds. Dry land, vegetation, animals, plants, us. The point being that this column is a is is the reason for creating this column. I'll get to the very, very last conclusion here on this one. We're last because we have filled and therefore are in charge of all the stuff before us. Got it? That's what that view would say. It was formless void. That's the problem at the end. He puts us and now it is very good because it's been formed, it's been filled, and I've got my people in charge down here to take care of all of it. Got it? So, we have the high position from God, right? It says in Psalm 8, he's crowned us with honor and glory. So we've got a royal status. So that fancy theological term for this would be vice-regent. We're like the vice-regents on behalf of God. All right? And then the lowly term maybe would be this. We are the groundskeepers here on earth. We do things on behalf of the Creator. In His stead, we act like Him. All right? So, verse 8, that's us before this. God's done the job in creation. He's given us this great position and responsibility, so we have the job now of acting like Him by creating ourselves and keeping all the things that He has created. Look in verse 8. This is just a cool point of church history, i got to tell you. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass, that pass through the paths of the sea. So just a little fun trivia for you. There's a guy named Matthew Maury uh, from the, uh, he lived, I think, just all the way through the 1800s, maybe into the 1900s. Anyway, he was a sailor for a while in the U.S. Navy. And I think around the time of the Civil War, he may have, um, I think he may have, 
joined the, the Confederate Navy as well. But anyway, after the war, I think he, he had some kind of accident, maybe like a stagecoach accident, right, in the late 1800s. So he's at home, and he has to be tended to um, in bed. And I, I think it was uh, one of his female relatives, maybe, he, he said, look, while I'm here, I want you to read the Bible to me. Just read it over and over and over again. And so she's just going through. And one day when he's there, you know, just trying to recuperate, she gets to Psalm 8. And at the end of the Psalm 8 right here, when she talks about the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea, he, read that again. Paths of the sea. There's paths in the sea? I guess. I mean, I just, I don't know. David wrote, I don't know. It's in the Bible, I guess. Well, I need to find those paths then. So this guy, when he gets well, sets on this path of trying to find out what in the world this was saying. And so this guy, Maury, he comes, he's known as basically the father of oceanology, I think. He's, he's the one that basically wrote the first textbook on oceanography. He revolutionized the way that people navigated the, the open waters. He found the sea currents that we know, things like the Gulf Stream, we know about this sort of thing. He's the one that, inspired by verse 8, said, let me go find these things, and he did. He was able to cut, you know, time off of shipping routes because, no, you don't go over here, you go over here because this is the actual path of the sea. He's the guy that came up with it because in verse 8 he just said, well, I guess i got to go find it, which is very fascinating to me that someone would do that, and then that would revolutionize our life. He knew he had a job to do. And he knew that creation was done on purpose. And that God's done a marvelous job in creation. And he knew that in the process of subduing this earth and keeping it for the Lord, that we can maximize our potential. Let me tell you something. When you have the right view of creation like that, and you want to do your job in it, really good things come out of it. We follow today things that that guy came up with in the late 1800s. Completely revolutionized how we, how we viewed the ocean. Just because of verse 8 in Psalm 8. When I say do your job, that's not me saying that you need to go bully Japanese whaling vessels, all right? Or that you need to go protest factory farming, you know, um, something like that, all right? I don't think that's appropriate given my time to exposit this one little text right here. I'm, I am telling you this, that there is no place on this earth that God has not created. There is no place on this earth that has not been valuable for creation. And there is no one on this earth that is not value, not of value to God, that has not been crowned with glory and honor, is not given a great position, that should be treated with that great position, and that you should not be keeping and trying to bring into the right knowledge that they are part of the family of God. When I say do your job, yeah, honestly, I do think Christians should have the best looking yards. To be honest, I do. And I say that because my lawnmower broke just yesterday. And so, you know, the, the backyard looks nice, 
But then I had the problem, so my front yard looks like garbage. But I will tell you this, this is a little side note, that by the way, the, the higher your grass goes, the, the lower the soil temperature, which is better, and it creates more life. It's really good, by the way, for the earth if you let your grass grow up. There you go. This is not an, an environmental uh, activism speech, although I do feel very strongly, like I said, that there is no square inch of this earth that God has not created and should not be treated very well, as if it is the Augusta National, as if we should treat it that way. By the way, if you have the idea, whenever you see something terrible on the news, to just throw your hands up and say, come on, Jesus, come on back, just take me, do you realize at the end, the way the Bible describes a kingdom forever, it is an earthly kingdom. Do you realize that? It's not somewhere else. Maybe if we give Elon Musk two more decades, we will be a multi-planetary civilization, but as of right now, we just have earth. And at the end of the Bible, it is very clear that Jesus reigns on an earthly kingdom. And some of you, maybe you won't like it, but if the President of the United States was coming to your house, you might want to vacuum first. Maybe some of you wouldn't. I don't care if you like them or not. Picture someone you do like. You might clean up a little bit. And some of us have the idea, come on, Jesus, come on back. I'm through with this place. He's not through with this place. He's not through with you. He's not through with the people that you're through with. You are called to be a groundskeeper. He's not done with them. As it says in 2 Peter, he's not slow. He is not slow. It is his will that all would come to him through repentance. He is taking his time in perfect time to give you time to keep these grounds, to make this ground right, to till up the soil in people's hearts so that you can harvest people to be part of the family of God. Do your job. By the way, if that sounds all alien and you are not part of that mission, then maybe it is time for you to do your job of simply becoming a part of the family of God. The Bible has these two really easy instructions. Repent and believe, right? You're going on the wrong way, turn around, come back to God, and invite anyone. If all that, again, sounds alien, you are supposed to be part of the family of God. God has not made you and not called you important. God has not made you and not think that you are less valuable than the Augusta National. Be a groundskeeper. If you're not a groundskeeper, join the team. Do your job. Just like the New England Patriots. If everybody just does their job well, we're all going to have a great time. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this great psalm. The instructions you give us, the instructions you inspire us to, uh, thank you for how excellent your name is in all the earth. We read at the end, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. There is no one like you. There is no one who could have come up with a plan 
to value all of us. We, we know our value when we see that you love us so much that you would give up your son. You love the whole world that you sent your son so that any one of us who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I pray that for anyone that would hear this message, that if they do not know the son, that they would turn to him, believe in him, believe in his death and resurrection, and that they would be born again, and that they would be a part of this, this great multitude who are crowned with glory and honor, just as you would see them to be. I ask that they would know you very well and that you would change their lives. Fill them with the Holy Spirit and make them new creations. Help us to remember our job here and help us, enable us to fulfill our job, to keep the ground, subdue the earth, but to bring in everyone because there's no one here that you have created that is not your handiwork, that is not important to you, more important than the sun, the moon, the stars, Give us that, that right view and help us to treat people that way. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.